All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Boy, it's good to have you all here. It's good to have you here. Uh, okay. The hymn is 497. We'll sing stanzas two and three. You should know this so well if you've been watching the congregation at prayer. Two and three, stanzas two and three. Come, holy light, kind divine, now cause the word of life to shine. Teach us to know our God aright, and call him Father with delight. From every error keep us free. Let none but Christ our Master be, that we in living faith abide. In him our Lord with all our might confide. Alleluia, alleluia. Come, holy fire, comfort true. Grant us the will your work to do, and in your service to abide. Let trials turn us not aside. Lord, by your power prepare each heart, and to our weakness strength impart, that bravely here we may contend. Through life and death to you, our Lord, ascend. Alleluia, alleluia. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. We pray again. O God, on this day you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us in our day by the same Spirit to have a right understanding in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy consolation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is from Matthew chapter 5. And I could tell you that I did this on purpose, having the same verse and catechism as last week, but the confession that I have for you is I didn't. I reviewed the congregation at prayer before I sent it off for printing, and I said, yes, this looks just exactly right. And it wasn't until this morning that I realized it wasn't what I wanted. So we'll just have a review. So let's speak this together, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be feared. Okay, uh, like I mentioned last week, if you listened to the recording, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That it isn't just, oh, well, anybody who is hungry or thirsty, blessed are they, and I'll, I'll uh, give them some food to eat 
any time that their tummy grumbles. It isn't about that. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, it doesn't mean that God's not going to take care of you, but it means that you don't live by bread alone, that there is something greater than the food that your stomach takes in. Uh, The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness of Jerusalem turned these stones into bread. There are things that are more important than turning stones into bread and eating them. Uh, You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you have the guarantee, see the word shall, for they shall be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Where is the guarantee? Okay, yes, the resurrection. Uh, Really, it's in Christ. So that includes the resurrection, also the crucifixion, the ascension, the incarnation, all of it. Everything in Christ. The promise is fulfilled and guaranteed in the person of Christ. How do you know that you're going to be filled if you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, firstly, because Christ has spoken so, but because Christ has made it so. He has fulfilled the law. He has given you his flesh and blood to eat and to drink. He has given you his Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you in all truth and righteousness. Uh, Okay? So blessed are those who hunger and thirst because they shall be filled. Very good. Let's speak this again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Good. And the catechism. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. Okay, there's a little trick here that Luther does when he writes this. It's the same one he he used in baptism. Uh, Certainly not just eating and drinking. It's like saying, what is baptism? Well, it's not just plain water. And the implication of that is, well, it's not just water, but it is water. It's not just bodily eating and drinking, but it is bodily eating and drinking. That it's... This element is included, but not on its own. It's not water on its own. It's the, the water with the word and promise of God. It is the eating and drinking, the bodily eating and drinking with the word and promises of God that make it effective, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, and its effect to you is that it is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, when you take eat and take drink, as Jesus said that you ought, you also receive uh, through his words and by his promise the effect that it gives, which is forgiveness of sins. Now, these words, along with, here it is, along with bodily eating and drinking. It's the two of them together. So you can't just go up and, before the consecration, eat a host and drink a sip of wine and call it communion. Uh, Likewise, you can't, after consecration, step up and just stand there and have me speak the words, the body and blood of Christ given and shed for you, and then walk away without feeding you. The two have to go hand in hand, the bodily reception and eating and the words that Christ has said. 
Uh, they are the main thing in the sacrament, and whoever believes these has exactly what they say, the forgiveness of sins. Wherever there is the forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation, as Luther also writes. Why? Because where there is sin, there can only be what? There can only be death. There is only ever death where there is sin. But the converse of that is, when then there is forgiveness of sins, the natural consequence is life. So where there is forgiveness of sins, i.e. in the sacrament, when Christ says, this will forgive your sins, there is life. Which is one reason, among many, why we call it the food of immortality. Uh, very good questions. All right, you're so docile. Children, you may depart. Okay, there's a handout for Bible class today. Before we look at, before we look at this, I have a few housekeeping matters to bring to your attention. Firstly, we're not technically under regulation, but there are still recommendations. And here's my recommendation to you. Please exercise common sense. Wash your hands. If you touch things, wash your hands. Don't cough or sneeze on people. And if you don't feel good, please don't come. Now, there's hand sanitizer and there's Kleenex right in the back of the nave where the bulletins are. The bulletin says that we'll be collecting offering, but we called an audible on that, and we'll put the box back. You can put your offering in the box at the back. My wife, also in setting up communion, separated the individual cups and spaced them apart in the tray so that you're not touching a thousand other cups when you go to get your one. Uh, if you still wish to receive by intinction, when an elder comes by with the common cup, just cross your arms over your chest. And if an elder sees that, they should tell me. And if I see it, I will come back and commune you by intention. Uh, actually, you do it when I come with the host. Excuse me, that would be better. <laughs> when I come with the host. Okay? So that's, that's always an option. And that's not, nothing has really changed there with a virus. I w I'm always willing to offer communion by intention. Okay? Uh, now, here are a couple other business things. Firstly, the, we've got everybody back. The, sh the service is not abridged anymore, um, which means we have an introit. The introit will be spoken by whole verse, just like we were praying the Psalms through the Lenten midweek for the time that they lasted and during the congregation at prayer. So, you know, when we do the psalm in the congregation at prayer, I do a whole verse, congregation does a whole verse. That's how we'll start doing the introit. Why do you wonder we'll be doing the introit this way? Because, see, by this point, the choir would have already answered your question, but we're going to start learning how to chant the introit uh, in, in some time when the choir gets back, so probably fall. But just like we would chant psalms, we chant the introit, and that goes whole verse by whole verse because you complete a full cycle. Da, 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 dum, ba, da, da, dum. And they go cycle by cycle by cycle, whole verse by whole verse. So for consistency's sake, we will 
speak it that way too, so that we're always in the habit of going whole verse by whole verse. So tell your friends and neighbors. Uh, that's, that's one minor change. Here's the other minor change. The Gloria. I am reclaiming my part of the Gloria, which you may not have ever noticed. If you look in your hymnal on page 187, that is where the Gloria is. We'll be chanting the Gloria, like always, but we'll be doing it the way that we've been speaking it during the services. Pastor will say, Glory be to God on high, and the congregation will join in at And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And you see it right here in the book. This little beginning tone is called an incipit. It's a holdover from the old days of Gregorian chant. So if you ever listen to old Latin chant and you listen through the, you know, the five ordinaries of the service, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei, almost all of those begin with a little incipit that the priest or the pastor would chant. So like for the Gloria, uh, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to be to God on high, and then everybody comes in. And with the creed as well, uh, credo in unum deum, and then the rest of the congregation chants it. So this is a holdover. So, uh, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, glory be to God on high, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Okay? So that's the long explanation. The short explanation is, I want to sing what the book says I should sing. <laughs> okay? So, now you know. And see, you're the lucky ones, you who come to Bible class, because you end up being my plants. Sort of like how the choir is my plant when we're learning new hymns or things. I teach it all to the choir ahead of time, and then they disperse themselves among you, and they sing it like they know it, because they do, and they help everyone else sing and know it, okay? So, here we go. Now, to Bible class. I thought it fitting for today, for two reasons. One, because I'm in the business of bursting bubbles, and two, because it's confirmation today on the Feast of Pentecost the second best of all days to have confirmation, um, to talk a little bit about confirmation. So that's what we're going to do. I have a cheeky title for you that you see there, because I'm a cheeky sort of fellow. And um, for anybody who sat in on the catechumenate or who listened to recordings of the catechumenate, You've heard inklings of a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. And especially if you are someone who comes to midweek and is being confirmed and happened to sit down with Pastor at some point in the last two weeks to have a little talk, you definitely know what we're going to be talking about today. But don't worry, I won't call on you, Mr. Plant. Okay, so... Here's the deal with confirmation. We're going to look at what it is and what it isn't. And normally, I don't like to define things by what they are not. In fact, that's a, a criticism that I have of many Lutheran theologians, and often the way that the Lutheran Church in America chooses to address topics, not by confessing what it is they believe, but by denouncing what it is they do not believe. Uh, so here's an example. What is justification? 
Well, let's take a step back and think about some of the ways we've heard it explained. And most of the time it's, well, it isn't this, it isn't this, because we don't believe what the Catholics believe, and we don't believe what the Calvinists believe, and we don't believe what the Evangelicals believe. And then they sort of trail off and you are left thinking, well, then what is it that we do believe? So this is a criticism, and I'm sort of being a hypocrite because I'm doing it. Uh, but I'm doing it for a reason, and that reason is that, especially with something like this, when there is sort of a set understanding or thoughts about a thing, if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of that thing, you first have to break down any preconceived notions or uh, thoughts about what the thing is so that you can build it up. So that's what we'll be doing. So first, then, we have to talk about this, what confirmation is not. Confirmation is kind of a weird thing, really. If you look at the history of it, it has a diverse evolution from the beginnings in the early church through the medieval period into the Reformation and then following the Reformation. Basically, uh, it's been a thousand different things throughout history. And, and even today, uh, if you sat down with probably, let's say, uh, a Baptist, a Lutheran pastor, an Orthodox priest and a Catholic priest, and you ask them all the same question, what is confirmation? They would all tell you something different. What does confirmation do? Well, that's, it's a good question. So we look at it from the Lutheran standpoint. What is it that Lutherans believe about confirmation? What have Lutherans, uh, through history, written and confessed about confirmation? And uh, really, specifically, Lutherans in America... Uh, Lutheranism in America is kind of weird. It has a weird history, and uh, when the Lutherans came to America, in many ways they became slightly estranged from their brothers and sisters that still were in Europe. Uh, and part of that was the frontier setting of America when they came here. Part of it was the well-established Methodism that was already here. So Lutheranism had a sort of a difficult time getting a foothold in areas where everybody was already Methodist and only knew what it was to be Methodist. So, um, and if you read someone like C.F.W. Walther, too, uh, who's sort of like our trademark main guy for American Lutheranism, his main enemy is Methodists and Methodism. You read his stuff and he just talks all about, I don't care if the Methodists do it this way, we're Lutherans. I don't care if the Methodists believe this, we're the Lutherans. I don't care if the Methodists build their buildings like this or ride horses like this, we're the Lutherans and we'll do it like this because that's who we are. And I think it's just kind of funny that he's always talking about the Methodists. Uh, so, and this is not me trying to offend any former Methodists, by the way. So, the first thing that confirmation is not is graduation. I think that all too often there is sort of a sense that confirmation is graduation. Uh, in fact, there's uh, many times not so much a level of understanding as the benchmark for confirmation as uh, an age or a grade level for confirmation. Like, I'm in eighth grade, now I'm going to be confirmed. Or I'm 14 years old, now I'm going to be confirmed because magically I've reached an age. Um, which is kind of funny because it's almost like the Lutheran version of the age of accountability. Well, when can you be confirmed? Well, not till I get to be 14. But boy, howdy, once I get to be 14, then it's, the doors are open. So there's a, 
the, the benchmarks are sort of all over the place. Uh, where it really ought to be based upon your level of understanding. Have you gone through the education? If you have gone through the education, if you have learned the faith, the basics of it, if you have been catechized, that is the benchmark. Not whatever age or grade that you are. It ends up, in many ways, becoming a rite of passage. And to a degree, confirmation is a rite of passage. But it's not a rite of passage based upon your age or your grade level, but the degree to which the church has instructed you. So it's really, it is an educational thing. Now, Lutherans during the 19th century especially the early 19th century, and the late 18th century as well, um, they were influenced by pietism and rationalism, um, enlightenment, the idea that we need to think about things. And I've talked about rationalism and pietism before. In fact, during Lent, we talked about pietism versus piety, if you remember. Piety being the natural acts of faith um, and the natural instinct and desire of faith to lead a holy life and the practice of faith in naturally doing so versus pietism being the mandated holiness, that you can't be a Christian unless you don't drink alcohol uh, or unless you don't go to dances or play cards. And you see this in the holdover of the old American Lutheranism, where it was a sin to dance, it was a sin to play cards, it was a sin to buy insurance, because if you had insurance, it meant that you didn't trust in God. So you should just trust in God and not buy insurance. I mean, think about that today. What if your pastor got in the pulpit and preached a whole sermon to you about how you were all going to hell because you had life insurance and health insurance. You should just trust that God will take care of you and the next time you go to the hospital, not worry about that bill. (laughs) See? Uh, All of us have benefited in one way or another from health insurance, and it's not an impious act to have it. Um, So, mandated holiness. Holiness is good. It's good if you want to live a holy life. It is good for you to want to do better, to strive toward the good things. That's good. It's commendable. You ought to do that. But if the church comes in and starts telling you these are the rules and guidelines by which every single person has to live or else they aren't a Christian, no alcohol, uh, no meat, no vegetables, no whatever, that's where you start to get into some issues. Now, rationalism, on the other hand, that ties into pietism, it it understands faith. This is my biggest problem with the idea of rationalism. It changes what faith is. Changes the definition of faith. That faith no longer resides in the heart. Faith is no longer trusting in the Lord. It is no longer belief in the things unseen, but it is instead the intellectual assent and consent that the creed becomes your personal statement. 
where you look at the creed and you say, well, this is my creed because I personally approve everything here. Or conversely, I don't approve everything here and therefore I won't say it. Of course, you know, the understanding ought to be that it isn't your creed and that the words of the creed are not your words, it's the church's words. Because life isn't about you, it's not about you. But faith becomes rooted in the mind and in the intellect. And if faith is in the intellect, how do you measure somebody's faith? By how smart they are. Yeah, you measure their faith by how smart they are, by what they know. So that you can really see if somebody truly believes by the degree to which they can answer your questions correctly, write a test and get 100%, explain everything perfectly, and only then do you know that they really believe. Yeah, if you, ha- you really believe if you have a bunch of Bible verses memorized. Now see, this is a double-edged sword, though, because should you probably have some Bible verses memorized? Yeah. Well, the congregation at prayer even does that, a verse for the week that you're supposed to take to heart. And hopefully by the end of the week, from the repetition of doing your, your morning and or evening devotion, that verse sticks with you. Um, but I would rather that you knew the message of the gospel and understood the message of scripture and knew Christ in the way that Christ wants you to know him than being able to stand in front of me and fire off a bunch of Bible verses from the hip. If you can do both of those, I commend you. (laughs) So yeah, learn your Bible verses, but don't, don't think that your faith is dependent upon or based upon the degree to which you use your brain. Now, here's where rationalism and pietism combine, primarily with the sacrament. Uh, Actually, sacraments, plural. So, on on the one hand, you have baptism, and you have even the Lutherans that say, well, now, listen, you need to have faith to be baptized, and... um, Baptism is such a really holy thing. Okay, here's pietism. Baptism is a really, really holy thing. So holy, in fact, that we should be kind of afraid of it and not you know, approach it cautiously and be really, really holy and make sure that we're really, really holy before we go there. And also, here's rationalism, baptism is such an important thing and it's received by faith that we ought to make sure that this person really does believe before we take them to baptism. And the only way really to know if they believe is to put them through the rigors and make sure that they can confess with their own mouths uh, the truth of baptism. Now you see where this is going? We can't baptize until they confess. So now we get into... Yeah, age of acceptance, age of accountability. We don't baptize babies. The Lutherans did that. There's a whole branch of Lutherans, specifically in America, that said, well, faith is knowing, and being holy is living holy, and a baby can't do that, so we're not going to baptize a baby. We're not going to baptize until they can make confession. Now, that's a combination of pietism and rationalism. Now, here's how it works with regard to the Eucharist. Well, that's a really, really, really holy thing. Really holy. 
uh, you know, and, and we ought to be very careful about who we give it to. True, true or false? Well, it's kind of true. Exactly, yeah. See, it is kind of true. We practice closed communion. Pastor is a steward of the mysteries. And uh, like I like to say, you know, I don't, I'm not going to feed you bleach. Uh, I'm not going to give you poison. And uh, that would be bad for me as well because as a steward of the mysteries, I do not want my Lord to come back. You know, look at all those parables. I don't want my Lord to come back and say, you wicked servant, you have you know, hidden my denarius away or done shrewdly with it. Uh, so you know, there's a responsibility and an impetus upon pastors to uh, be careful in how they administer the sacrament. However, there isn't a, a responsibility or an impetus to be afraid of it. There is to be in awe of it. Awesome is a word that is unfortunately overused and for that reason, has lost its great connotation because everybody thinks, hey, man, that's awesome. That was an awesome trick. That was an awesome song. And then, you know, you, don't, you lose what awesome is. And when you sing a hymn that says, Christ comes clothed in awesome majesty. Yeah, awesome. Christ is coming. Uh, but you don't really get the sense of what awesome as a word meant <laughs> before it was sort of diluted. And really... It's greatness, a grandeur almost, that Christ is awesome in that you are struck with awe at the sight of him. Oh, that the force of his mere being, of who he is, his very essence, floors you and amazes you. And the greatness, you have no other response but to just, oh, gasp and groan. There was, you know, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there was a, a Monty Python sketch where they were in church and they were praying and the prayer went like this. Oh, Lord, you are so big. You are so very big. So very, very big and great. And we are so very small. And it just went on and on and on and on like that. But the funny thing is, it's kind of true in the sense that you are in awe of the majesty of God. But you don't have to be afraid. <clears throat> fear. You know, we read the Psalms and fear the Lord. Oh, you who fear the Lord. And Luther even has a whole sermon that he wrote. I think in 15... It's before 1521, maybe? 1520, 1520, 1521 on fear. What it means to fear the Lord. And really what it is is reverence. So how do you fear the Lord? Well, when you walk in front of the altar or pass across its face, you reverence, you, are, you fear the Lord, you uh, behave differently in the presence of the Lord, like you go into the sanctuary, that's a different space than it is here. You don't run around or play games or do the same stuff in there that you would in here. We don't even let you bring coffee or treats in there. Okay? It's completely different. That was supposed to be a joke because there's a sign that says don't take the treats in. Uh, so it's a different place, and you behave differently there because of the fear that you have of God, not being afraid of him, but serving in reverence. So this, the Eucharist is not something to fear. Now the other side then, well, should, this is a combination of pietism and rationalism. Now we really, St. Paul says to examine yourself, and uh, 
well, how do we know that somebody can examine themselves really unless we examine them? And unless we really know what it is that they believe. And so we need to give them a test or we need to set them up in front of the entire congregation and have them answer questions about the catechism. Now, I don't remember from the stories that I've heard if they had done that here, but I do know that when I was a field worker at the seminary, the church where I served did that. And they had all these poor 12, 13, and 14-year-olds standing up there and the whole congregation would show up on a Thursday night and sit there and stare at these poor kids. And one by one, they'd march them and put them up front and they even gave them a microphone so everyone could hear. And the pastor would bring out a big stool and he would sit in the center and stare at these kids and he was a big guy, Bill Brady, big guy with a big, deep, husky smoker voice. And Bill Brady would say, What is the explanation of the third article of the creed? And the congregation would go, And these kids would go, And do their best to answer the question. And they would do like 20 minutes for every single one of those confirmands. And I was sitting there sweating bullets for those poor kids. And, uh, and that's, that's a very old thing uh, in American Lutheranism, setting somebody up in front of the church and then grilling them like that publicly. Um, Some of the older pastoral manuals that talk about uh, admittance to the Lord's Supper talk about examining. Pastors examine. You used to have to register for communion. Maybe you remember that. You'd sign a card and you'd give it to the pastor and it was the pastor's job once a year to go around and examine all his people to make sure that they really believe what they're supposed to be believing. Um, but so we take our, our confirmands and we, we tell them now you're going to go through all this learning just like you do in school and then at the end of it uh, you, you get to come here but you have to pass a big test um, and in a sense it, sort of like, it, it's sort of like graduation now it, when I was confirmed um, the church where we attended was it was an okay Lutheran church I'm not going to speak poorly of it um, I think there was more they could have taught in confirmation. I think perhaps the education could have been a little bit better. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that after confirmation, almost everybody who was my age who had been confirmed stopped coming to church. They, ga- they came until they were confirmed, and then after that, well, I'm done. What, el- what else is there? This is- confirmation is the last big thing. I had to do it. Or you hear the parents when the kids show up for class and they're complaining, well, why do I have to, I don't want to go to confirmation class. And the parents say, well, listen, you, ju- you just have to do it. I did it, your dad did it, your grandparents did it, you have to do it. And, it. and it's the attitude of, well, you know, you just have to get it over with. You just have to put your head down and do it, and then when it's done, you can be done. And the other thing was this. When I talk about rite of passage, I don't want to say that confirmation is a, privilege, not a right, because to a degree it's a right, but there are some privilege aspects to it as well, um, which we can talk about later when, it's, when it comes up, but I had people that went through, you know, we, we had to do assignments, we had to f- do worksheets and fill out things, we had to do sermon reports, and we had to do all of this work, and um, I, the majority of the people I was confirmed with, those kids didn't do anything. They didn't fill out their, their sheets. They didn't do their worksheets. They didn't care about the sermons. They didn't write anything down. And guess what happened? 
at the end of eighth grade, after the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade period of education, well, they were confirmed. Why? Because they were done with eighth grade and they were 13 or 14 years old. And it didn't matter what they knew. And I can tell you they didn't know much. I can tell you I didn't know much. Um, so they stopped coming to church. It doesn't matter. I'm going to get confirmed no matter what I do. In fact, we picked our own confirmation verses. And I'm not going to badmouth the practice, but I am going to tell you that it's not my favorite practice. And you'll see today, the confirmants did not pick their own verses. Pastor picked their verses and assigned their verses to them. I think that confirmation ought to be a deeply personal thing between the catechumen and the pastor because you've spent so much time going through the basics of the faith. You've talked with them and you've taught them, hopefully, at such a level that you have a relationship that's been established. A pastor ought to know his people well enough. And I'm not, I say people, not just children, because it isn't just children. A pastor ought to know his people well enough that when it comes time for a confirmation, he can pick a verse that is good for them, that fits them, and that will stick with them. And I think that there's something really, really special about having your pastor come up at your confirmation and give you your verse, that he cared so much for you and knew you so well that he chose your verse and he gave it to you. And that even in your confirmation, it isn't what you're doing, but it's all what you are receiving. It is what the church is doing to you. It is what Christ is doing to you. It is what you receive, what's being done for you. We are beggars all, and you are nothing if not given to. And even something as simple as that really highlights that. But we chose our own verses, and many of you probably chose your own verses as well. And I thought really long and hard, Revelation is my favorite book of the Bible, and I wanted to make a statement about that and make sure that my confirmation verse was from Revelation. So it is, Revelation 7.17. But there was a rule well, you're not allowed to pick John 3.16. You can't have John 3.16 as your verse. So one smart aleck kid chose John 3.17. Why? Because it was because he didn't care. Because it doesn't mean anything. I'm going to be confirmed. Oh, you okay, got to pick a verse? Okay. And um, another kid chose Jesus wept. Why? Because it's short and it's easy to remember. Like, but then what does, it, what does it mean? I mean, you... You're just laughing at the assignment because it doesn't really mean anything to you. And we can all laugh here because it is sort of funny. You think about teenagers, Jesus wept. Now, sure, that's a real teenager thing to do. All the more reason to have the pastor pick it out for you because most of the time, teenagers' brains aren't right in the place they ought to be. Okay? (laughs) And you're, you're coming up there. You're not as smart as you think you are. Your parents are right about everything. You heard it from me. Many, many times I apologized to my parents and I said, you were right about everything. I don't know why I thought you were wrong. And I still think to this day, it is some kind of a miracle that God permits such a transformation to happen in the youth where all of a sudden, your parents don't know anything. They could tell you the sky's blue and you'd tell them it was wrong. And then you grow up a little bit and you realize, boy, your parents are probably the smartest people you know. I can't wait till the day that I get to experience my child telling me that I'm the smartest person she knows. It'll be a while. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, all of this is to say that confirmation 
in, in many places, in many ways, and because of certain traditions, takes on this tone of graduation. So I have this quote here. This is from a book called Confirmation in the Lutheran Church. It was published in 1964. It is old. But even the, like, I read a bunch of stuff. I did a whole bunch of studying putting this together. There's the most recent article that I found was a scholarly article published in 2018 that went over the course of confirmation, its history, and its evolution in the Lutheran Church in America. And even that article still cites Arthur Rep's book from 1964 because this was and is the pillar book that did all the work and scholarship looking at what confirmation is. And this is what he writes. Since confirmation instruction proved to be more than simply a preparation for First Communion, that's a big thing right there, by the way, and we'll get to that, more than simply a preparation for First Communion, and became an opportunity to consecrate, excuse me, concentrate on the catechumen's general, general religious instruction with confirmation as a sort of terminal point, the emphasis is mine, that's not his. I'm making a point here, so I'm emphasizing this. As a sort of terminal point. How horrible that confirmation is the end, and then you have the kids that never come back to church. Why? Because I've been confirmed. And then you have the people that have lived their entire lives as heathenous pagans, and they come back to church and they say, well, I was confirmed as a Lutheran, though. You were confirmed as a Lutheran? Was that the end of it? That the magnitude of all of the gifts the church has ever given you is confirmation? And that years from now, when you've lived apart from the church, you come back and you just point to confirmation as if it was this one event that magically did something that is permanent for you? It's sort of sad. The terminal point. The tendency to advance the age to 13 and 14 prevailed. This was especially true when confirmation instruction was associated with the close of school, as had been the case in Europe. You know, this is during the late 1700s into the 1800s. Congregations that conducted parish school, especially in rural areas, followed the European pattern of closing the school term at Easter. Why? Do you know this? Why they closed school? Why did they close school at Easter? <clears throat> Yes, you had to go to work. You had to go help your parents. My mother taught rural country schools, mm-hmm. and they got out around the 1st of April, and which coincides with Easter, also coincides with the ground was ready to start plowing. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in the rural areas, <clears throat> it's mostly farmers. And uh, Excuse me. Yes. And Lutheran Church Reserve Synod, although it had large urban congregations, was really in the 1850, 1860, up to 1940, was really a rural church. Well, if you want to talk statistics even now, I'd say the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is still predominantly a rural church. You've got some of your bigger churches in the big cities, and you've got even some of your LCMS mega churches, but the meat of where Missouri Synod sits is in the rural areas. Hey, we're part of the meat. (laughs) Okay, so, but you have these families and they don't have their John Deere tractors that drive themselves or any of that fancy stuff. And uh, they needed everybody in the family. So you couldn't go to school because you had to be out helping your parents in the fields. So they just lined up graduation from school with Easter. And the church lined up confirmation 
with graduation. Uh, a child's confirmation, therefore, coincided with his graduation from grammar school. Immigrants from Europe after the 1830s generally favored the same time of year for confirmation in the United States. There you go. So, how many of you have ever heard this? Lutherans do confirmation on Palm Sunday. Have you ever heard that? Some, yeah. Yeah, okay, see? And, and there's a long-standing tradition in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod of doing confirmation on Palm Sunday. Why? Because of this. Be, because the answer is, well, that's how we've always done it. But why did, is it that that's how you've always done it? Well, because back in the day when you first came here to this country, you were coming from rural areas in Europe that, coin, that had graduation coinciding with uh, Easter and about that time, and then the church did the same thing. Well, we'll just graduate you from confirmation the same time, and then we, you, we don't have to worry about you giving up field work to come to church to classes either. And they came to America and did the same thing. That's why Palm Sunday is the traditional confirmation day. It's kind of weird. Uh, uh, the history of, of what Lutheranism is I've said this before, but it doesn't really go back as far in many cases as it ought because it really only goes back to the 1800s and 1830s and 50s and 70s when the churches started coming to America. So uh, this is, the emphasis again is mine, but a child's confirmation coincided with his graduation from grammar school. That's a really important thing. The, the language of confirmation also sometimes is confusing and leads to the misunderstanding of it as graduation. The end of confirmation classes. That it is the goal. What is our goal of education? Confirmation's the goal. What do you do after the goal? Nothing. The rite of passage for children. That's a big one, too, because it's for children. So then you have adults that come to the faith, and then they don't want to do confirmation because they think it's only for kids. And a requirement for qualifying for the Eucharist. Well, you can't have communion because you're not confirmed. So the ultimate goal is then we're going to go, commun we're going to go through all these rigorous classes. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And then, um, and only then, can you commune. So... That's that. Now, here's another thing. Um, you know, often confirmands will wear the white gowns. I wore one. I think I've, I've seen a lot of your confirmation pictures. You probably don't know that. I've seen a number of you from the day you were confirmed. Uh, and I recognized you all. You haven't aged a day. You look so good. Okay? Uh, but you, that's what is seen as the tradition except for those are graduation gowns. What you'll notice today, also, so as a sort of footnote, one of the reasons that we're doing this class today, and look at this, we're not even going to finish it today. I, this was supposed to be a one-shot thing. Uh, I should have learned. But one of the purposes that we're doing this is because you're going to see some things today at confirmation that maybe you aren't used to. One being... Confirmation on Pentecost, perhaps, if you're used to Palm Sunday, um, or the, the intended plan, confirmation before the Easter Vigil, on, or excuse me, at the Easter Vigil on that holy Saturday night. Um, the other thing is they're not wearing white gowns. They're just wearing nice clothes. They look real sharp. I'm looking at you, guy. Real sharp. 
Okay? And, and of course, they'll have the boutonnieres um, and the corsage, but uh, we're not doing the white gowns. And the reason for that is this. Firstly, because it isn't graduation. And I don't want there to be any sense of confusion. It's the same reason we, we don't have confirmation stoles. I saw kind of a disturbing picture. Um, again, because this is on the podcast, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not going to say anything bad about any pastors or any church. I saw a picture that sort of disturbed me because it was a confirmation, and there were two pastors, and then there was the young lady who was being confirmed. The young lady was wearing an alb, a cincture, and a red confirmation stole, standing between two pastors wearing an alb, a cincture, and a red stole. Now that kind of stuff is confusing. And I don't want to cause any confusion. There's only one person who wears a stole here. And I don't ever want there to be confusion about who that person is or what the office is. So the stole's going to stay. So that's one reason. The other reason is this. Often the explanation for the white gown is the righteousness of Christ that is clothing somebody. Or even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But then do we say that what's happening on confirmation is something different than what happened at baptism? Are you receiving an outpouring of the Holy Spirit you didn't have when you were baptized? Are you receiving something new from God that you didn't have before? And ultimately, the answer is no, you're not. So in order to continue confessing the reality that you are a baptized child of God, we avoid the confusion. These are some of my reasons. Okay, so. We don't have time to do what I want to do. Okay, then here's what we're going to talk about. This is going to be our introduction. When I was talking about pietism and rationalism going into this combined weird ideal of the 17th, or excuse me, of the 18th and 19th centuries, I quoted St. Paul saying that you must examine yourself. What does that mean? Pardon me? Oh, St. Paul says you must examine yourself. Yeah. He wrote to the Corinthians, examine yourselves and discern the body. Discerno in the Latin, discern. And what is the first thought that we think of? Examine yourselves. What sins have I done? Okay, sure. What else? Okay. You're getting colder. What? You're getting colder. You were warmer saying examining for sins. But it's this idea of examination being a test. That I don't know what you know, so I need to sit down and I need to figure out what you know and what you think before I can take you here. Now, when we have visitors here and they want to commune, I will speak with them. Um, I'll ask them if they're baptized and if they believe that this is truly the body and the blood. But why do I ask visitors that stuff and I don't ask all of you that stuff? 
I don't know them. I don't know them. I don't know where they're from. I didn't catechize them. They're not of my flock. I don't know whose flock they're from. And lest I give away the body of Christ to someone who it might hurt, I need to figure out what flock they're from. And um, that's why I talk to them. But I don't ask you that question. Or do I? You now are going to learn a lesson about the liturgy. The idea that a pastor every single year needs to go knock on the doors of all his people and examine them, sit down and figure, do you believe this is money? Do you believe this? Let's go through these questions. You know. I think it's kind of silly. Why? Because it's redundant. And why is it redundant? Because I examine you every single week. And I do it two times every single week. Here's the first one. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Do you know what you're saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Brian knows, because we talked about this. When I say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, it means, this is the body and blood of Jesus, And to everyone who believes and who receives in faith, this grants true peace according to the words of Jesus. And when you say, Amen, you don't say it because, oh, it's what the book told me to say. You say it because what you're really saying is, yes, that is the body and blood of Christ, and I so deeply desire it, and I want the peace that it's going to give to me. And I'm just chomping at the bit. I can't wait to get out of my seat and get up there and have it. That's what you're saying when you say amen. There's examination number one. And here's examination number two. The body of Christ given for you. You ever notice that there's a space in between there? The body of Christ, pause, given for you. And when I distribute the chalice, do you ever notice the space? The blood of Christ, pause, shed for you. Why is there a pause? It's not for emphasis. Because you have a part to play. Don't you, Brian? What is your part to play? The body of Christ? I can't hear you. I still can't hear you. Amen. See, your part to play is to say amen. So when I say the body of Christ and you say amen, then I say given for you. Why? Because I'm examining you right there. This is the body of Christ. And you say, that's the body of Christ. Please give it to me. Amen. I want some of that. The heart of faith desires it. And I say, don't worry. It's given for you. Pop. There you go. I've given you two examinations already and you don't even realize it. Now, here's the other thing. St. Paul says, examine yourself. Okay. Well, pastors examined me two times. I've got to examine myself. What does it mean to examine yourself? Does it mean that you have to be able to sit down and explain every single tenant of the faith? Does it mean that you have to be able to recite the entire small catechism by heart with no mistakes in front of all hundred people in the congregation? Does it mean you have to know all of the passages from Scripture that you're given to learn by heart? No. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) See... This is pastor's confession. I don't really know uh, Scripture the way that I would like to. I know it in the, the way the author to the Hebrews knows it. I know that somewhere in the book of Psalms, the psalmist writes this. 
Now, I'm helped out because if I know that that's in the Bible, in the psalm somewhere, but I just can't remember what the actual psalm is, I can always just go to Google and type in the words, and Google will tell me what psalm it's from. So, you know, Google is bad because it, forces, it allows you to be lazy. But the fact of the matter is, I'm, I'd, I'm more concerned about you knowing Scripture rather than you knowing all of the precise uh, bibliographic citation information. Know the scripture and know what the scripture says. And when you learn the catechism, it helps you with that. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, then you know, oh yeah, Titus 3. Let me go look at Titus 3. I know that's in right there in Titus 3. Okay? So it, it isn't all about these knowing things, knowing points. And what it especially is not is explaining what the sacraments are. Jesus says to receive the faith like a little child. But adults, you've lost your sense of wonder. You've lost your imagination. You have to explain everything now as an adult. You have to look at something and say, well, that couldn't possibly be a monster because it's just the sheet that's in there or it's just the wind. You have to explain everything. But you can't live in a mystery. So in the church we say, well, to examine yourself, then you have to be able to explain exactly what this is. Well, I posit you this. If I set the benchmark for the reception of the Eucharist at the level wherein I told you, you're not allowed to come and receive this unless you can tell me exactly what it is, how it gets to be the way it is, what all is going on here, and explain to me with no mistakes, with no error, 100% correctly, everything that happens in the sacrament, then and only then will you receive it. I would never commune anyone for the rest of my life. Because it's a mystery. Mysterios. We say sacraments, but the Bible says mysteries. Mysterios. So in a certain sense, you have to understand that you don't understand. You have to be able to say with the voice of faith, not reason, this is the body of Christ. I don't know how it is other than that Christ says with these words it is. And that's what the small catechism helps to emphasize. You know that it's the body and blood of Christ. You know what it's for. You know that when the verba is spoken, at some point there it is the body and blood of Christ, even though your eyes, your nose, your tongue, your hands, everything will tell you, well, it's still bread and wine. So what is it to examine yourself? It is to look at the host when pastor holds it up and to say to yourself, well, that's definitely not wonder bread. It's to look at the chalice and say, well, that's definitely not Welch's special. <laughs> that was for you. <laughs> hey, that you know that there's something different. You discern the difference. This is not sandwich bread. This is the body of Christ. We act like it. I say it is. I wouldn't get down on my hands and knees at the altar. I wouldn't get down on my hands and knees to eat it up off the floor if it fell, if it was just a piece of wonder bread. I'd let the cats take care of it. Bruce. Pastor, so when you offer us the body of Christ and you say the body of Christ, you pause. Are you expecting us to respond with amen? I'm not expecting you to respond, but you're 
it's always appreciated. You're encouraged to respond. I don't put laws on you to say you have to say X, Y, and Z. But I'm explaining to you, if you're there and you see that there is a, or you hear that there is a pause, now you know what the pause is because I'm making sure that if you're going to say amen, there is a space for you to say it. Now, you should know me well enough 